Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Chapter 2. Make it like Greece. No, that was shit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Where are we? Where are we, yeah. We're sort of on the outskirts of London. We, d- we don't need to give the, uh, <laughs> the listener no, the don't exact give, don't give the exact address. Um, so, uh, one of the lovely original cast members, Kenny. Uh, lovely Kenny Linden. Lovely Kenny has, um, has set up a sort of reunion uh, with some of his former cast member friends. We're so lucky. Yeah, it's very exciting. And we're going to meet them, do a little interview with them in the garden. <laughs> Are you nervous? I'm a bit nervous, actually. Yeah. It's weird, because these are obviously the people that we've been talking about and listening to, and now yeah. we're going to meet them. Ah! Who are we going to meet? We're going to meet Lindsay Haightley. Lovely Lindsay Haightley. Uh, Kenny. A couple of Michelles. Yes. A couple more people joining on Zoom as well. Incredible. I hope they're not too scared of us. God, I would be. <laughs> Hello, we're obsessed with the job you did 20 years ago. <laughs> Do you think they're like, who are these people? <laughs> Welcome back to Out for Blood. I'm Chris. And I'm Holly. And we're dusting off our old VHS of Carrie the Musical, giving it another watch to see if it really deserves its reputation as Queen of Broadway Flops. So far, Dean Pitchford and Michael Gore, the award-winning writing team behind Fame, have paired up with Larry Cohen, the screenwriter of the acclaimed Carrie movie, to workshop their early material in New York. The concept was the talk of the town, but it needed to find an influential producing team to fund a full-scale Broadway show. But, as ever with this tale, nothing went smoothly. Despite many producers showing enthusiasm at the workshop, Carrie churned through a series of potential investors in its early days, struggling to progress much further. Here's the lyricist Dean Pitchford to pick up the story. There was a there was an enormous amount of, of interest and excitement about it. Um, we were very fortunate to get three very powerful producers, uh, men named Fred Zolo, who has gone on to his, uh, an estimable career, and then a married couple, Fran and Mary Weisler, who of course are responsible for, among other things, Chicago and Waitress. And um, very smart, very enthusiastic people. Producers were nervous, though, about staging this unique musical. It was hard to attract investors and raise the necessary funds. This was not classic Broadway fare. It was hard to pinpoint a target audience with enough disposable income to make the show a success. They realised we had very difficult material. This was, you know, and also cast your minds back. This is 1984, 85, 86, 87. Um, the, the idea of creating theatre for a young audience, which is all the rage these days. You know, there's so much that's uh, aimed at a young market and young performers are up on their stages doing those, those works. 1984, it was, Broadway was a much older person's game. Broadway in the 80s was also crowded with star names and many popular shows were either well-known classics or big new mega-musicals like Phantom of the Opera or entirely sensible, never destined to be a disastrous film, Cats. The feeling was nobody would pay big bucks for a show that was a million miles away from traditional Broadway fare. So except for the part of Margaret, there was no chance to 
provide marquee value, still with kids. Secondly, it was it begins with Carrie having her first period in the shower. Oh my God! And then it ends with her being drenched with blood and killing all of her classmates. So uh, you know, the only thing comparable was Sweeney Todd, and we kept referencing Sweeney Todd, but that was Stephen Sondheim starring uh, Angela Lansbury and uh, directed by Harold Prince. So there was a, a, a much, it was much easier to make that leap, although people held their heads when they heard the premise of that show. Buoyed by the popularity of Sweeney Todd, the creative team began to approach potential directors with their show. Several illustrious names met with the team, including Mike Nichols, the multi-Tony and Oscar award-winning director of The Graduate and The Odd Couple, but he ultimately declined to get involved. Uh, Bob Fosse turned it down, saying it needed to be darker and more dance-driven. I mean, I would have loved to see a Fosse carry. Oh my Can God. You Can you imagine? <laughs> He'd put Gwen Verdon in as Margaret. <laughs> this could be your weekly impression slot. Oh, good. Go okay. Uh, mm. oh, they're all going to laugh at you, Bob. That's more Marge, Marge Simpson, isn't it? I don't know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not make that a feature. Um, <clears throat> eventually, they had an unexpected lead from further afield. Our agent, Sam Cohen, legendary direct uh, agent at ICM, he had uh, signed as a uh, client, a directing client, Terry Hans from the RSC. Uh, and Terry had already brought to Broadway a couple of RSC productions. It made him very popular. He did a gorgeous uh, Cyrano de Bergerac on Broadway. Terry Hans was the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company in the UK. Commonly known as the RSC, the well-regarded theatre company was based in the playwright's birthplace, Stratford-upon-Avon, a small, sleepy town two hours north of London. Terry was a highly respected director of classical and Shakespearean plays. He had co-run the RSC with Trevor Nunn from 1978 until 1986, when he took over as sole artistic director after Trevor moved on to independent projects, including a little feline-based musical, which brought him enormous success on a global scale. Terry had won numerous awards in the 80s, including Olivier's for Henry VI and the aforementioned production of Serrano de Bergerac. Uh, He'd also been nominated for several Tony Awards when his shows moved to Broadway. Looking back, Terry Hans directed more RSC productions during his time than any other artistic director. So this guy is quite a big deal. Yeah. And we talk about Terry a lot in this podcast, as he's often taken a lot of flack for Carrie's disastrous outcome, mm. as you'll see. He had some radical ideas, but it's clear at the very beginning, at least, that he was incredibly passionate about the project. He embraced the challenge. It's safe to say that without Terry's contributions we probably wouldn't be here now talking about this show. Sadly, uh, Terry passed away in February 2020, so we can only rely on other people's memories of him and his work on the show. That and, of course, interviews that he did about Carrie. The legend of Carrie's spectacular failure would follow Terry until the end. Despite his many successes, his obituary in the New York Times led with the line, while at the Royal Shakespeare Company, he took several shows to Broadway. One didn't go so well. I mean, bloody hell, give him a break. (laughs) Drawing on his background as a classical director, Terry was intrigued by the possibilities of staging Stephen King's story as a sort of modern myth. Despite being a modern tale, he saw classical resonances in a story in which the underdog acquires mystical powers and takes vengeance against her enemies after having her dreams snatched away. So Terry pitched this approach to the writers. Given his lack of experience with musicals, they were sceptical at first, but eventually he won them over. As well as the artistic possibilities of the Carrie story, there was also a commercial draw for Terry. It was the 80s, after all, and money made the world go round. It may sound unusual for the Royal Shakespeare Company to be getting involved in the staging of horror novels, but at the time, the RSC was struggling financially. This was a tempestuous time for the arts in Britain. Under Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government, the golden age of subsidised theatre was under threat as she encouraged a move towards corporate sponsorship. Throughout her premiership, Thatcher consistently tried to turn the Arts Council into a means of government control rather than an independent body. Diminished public funding, combined with a disastrous 1986 London season of plays, had left the RSC £1.2 million, that's about $2 million, in debt. 
it was forced to lay off a quarter of the full-time salaried actors and reduce the number of productions being staged by a third. In an attempt to improve this state of affairs, the company had, for some years, been pioneering a new model of musical theatre production in which the publicly funded organisation would pair up with a commercial producer, adapting popular literature for the stage. And these shows would rehearse and perform a limited run at one of the RSC's own theatres. They would then transfer to the West End or Broadway, where there was much more income to be made on open ended runs. The producer would essentially risk their investment on the show being a hit with the hope of taking a large slice of the profits. And notably, this had worked well in 1985 when the RSC teamed up with Cameron Mackintosh to adapt Victor Hugo's novel Les Miserables. Rather than staging it in their Stratford home, the show played for a limited run at the RSC's London base, the Barbican Centre. And despite a shaky start, Les Mis went on to make millions for the RSC and even more for Cameron Mackintosh. As a side note, it also kept its creative team busy for decades as replica productions opened all around the world. Jeremy Sturt was the deputy stage manager and show caller on Carrie. He had an absolute itch to, because he was not involved in Les Miserables at all. So he was, you know, super jealous in many ways, as you can imagine. And um, he wanted to actually put on and do something uh, which was completely both could encapsulate that, but also be another marker. Um, so hence his desire to do it. Theatre critic Mark Shenton agrees that this desire to have his own big money smash hit was another reason why Terry Hans was so keen to direct Carrie. The RSC had had a smash hit with, with Les Miserables. Um, Trevor Nunn and Terry Hans were joint artistic directors of the RSC. Um, it's it's not, just, not just those two, but every British theatre director at the time and since, since as well. Everybody's always wanted their, their cash cow, that the show that pension gives them a pension for the rest of their lives. I mean, every single director wants that because once you've had a, uh, one of those shows, you don't need never work again or need never worry about work again. But what was interesting is this, this was all part of an, an era when British musicals were triumphing on Broadway. There was very few Broadway musicals worth, um, worth paying attention to. Broadway was actually not, not in a good state. They were relying on, on shows coming from the UK. So it was a very fertile landscape for British producers to inhabit. Spoiler alert, Carrie did not turn out to be the golden pension pot Terry had hoped for. Mm. At a party in New York, the Weisslers met Terry and expressed their enthusiasm for the project. They were excited by the award-winning expertise he would bring to the table and intrigued about how he would approach the high school scenes, having seen shows with similar settings grow in popularity in recent years. They encouraged him to use these school-based musicals as a reference point. Make it like Greece, they said. Oh no. Mm-hmm. Terry was struck with inspiration. With a wealth of experience directing classical plays, he realised the similarities between Stephen King's story and the structure of a Greek tragedy. Greece, the country, not the musical. Yeah. More athleisure than Athenian. Nice. <laughs> it was an easy mistake to make. But a few weeks later, when the Weisslers and Fred Zollo flew to London to look at some early concept sketches for the set and costumes, they suddenly lost some of their enthusiasm. Terry, along with costume designer Alexander Reed and set designer Ralph Coltai, had not brought along samples of, I don't know, American high school fashion or even sketches of high school gyms or locker rooms. No, no, they'd brought a confusing presentation full of stark white avant-garde sets that looked like Greek temples and pencil drawings of students dressed in what appeared to be togas. He made it like Greece. He did. (laughs) The Weisslers and Fred Zollo were less than impressed. Money and resources were already being used up and time had passed. They hadn't realised how much work it would take to get past Terry's lack of musical theatre experience. And frustrated, they withdrew their support for the project. It took time to find another producer, and without any funding coming in, work stalled. Already the writers were growing nervous about their choice of director and his unconventional approach. By a stroke of luck, Terry Hans met a wealthy German producer, Friedrich Kurtz, and persuaded him to come on board and co-fund the show with the RSC. Friedrich, known as Fritz, would front most of the money needed to prepare a big-budget transfer of the show after a run in Stratford. The two men struck a deal. The RSC would provide the theatre, rehearsal rooms and crew and put up about 10% of the funding. In exchange, Fritz would find the rest of the money from private investors and offer a guarantee that the RSC would receive a payback of £250,000 from Stratford ticket sales, plus a slice of future profits. 
Fritz had expertise and experience transferring big and flashy successful musical theatre shows. He'd previously worked with Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber to transfer mega-hits like Cats and Starlight Express from London to Germany. Unlike Carrie, the German production of Starlight Express is still running to this day. It has its own purpose-built theatre, you know. I I demand a Carrie (laughs) theatre. So with the enthusiastic backing of Fritz Kurtz, Terry prepared to pitch the project to the RSC's governing board. As the head of the RSC, Terry had to justify his work on this show to his board. And so he couldn't just go off and do a one-off production in New York. He was going to do it as a co-production with Friedrich Kurtz and the Royal Shakespeare Company, with the idea that the RSC would stand to benefit in the same way that it did from Nicholas Nickleby, or the same way that the public theater in New York has done from A Chorus Line and Hamilton. Uh, And that was his part of the the negotiation. The board was hesitant. It was a complicated setup and the content was controversial. The British press was also typically snobby about the plan to stage a musical adaptation of a horror novel on the sacred RSC stage. The notion of using public funds to develop a show set to make millions for private investors also rankled. The New Statesman magazine, on learning of the company's plan to co-fund a commercial tryout of the show, called the company, quote, a bedizened whore from Thatcher's Britain. It has gone to the streets to make money. So I uh, I looked up bedizened. What does it mean? Dressed up or decorated gaudily. Sort of like a Christmas tree. Or me! (laughs) (laughs) Fritz told the press, the RSC is on a shoestring and they're being criticised for doing commercial ventures. They're vital for the RSC's survival. The criticisms make no sense when Thatcher is cutting subsidies. But the media pointed out that while the RSC would still make some money from these projects, the commercial investors would earn substantially more. Terry also brushed aside the notion that this was simply a very out-of-town tryout for a Broadway show. This is my home, he told the Washington Post. I regard Stratford as our main engagement. Then we are going on tour. Our first stop happens to be Broadway. He had big plans for Carrie. He did. Responding to allegations of dumbing down, Terry pulled some classical references out of the bag. He compared the show to the classic myths of Cassandra and Oedipus, sprinkled with elements of the Cinderella fairy tale and a dash of the Samson Bible story. He said other high school students in Carrie's class could be seen as a modern version of the Greek chorus. It's interesting to see that as early as this announcement, you get the sense that the critics are really out for blood. Well done. See that? It's like they sort of wanted the show to be a failure in order to justify their arguments. Terry put on a brave face, but he must have been worried about what he'd taken on. Mm. Terry found a slot for Carrie in February 1988. At the beginning of the year, the RSC's main stage would be empty while their in-house company rehearsed elsewhere for the summer season of Shakespeare. The previous two years, Terry had filled the same slot with crowd pleasers that drew a wider, more mainstream audience. An adaptation of the Dickens novel Nicholas Nickleby had been popular, as had a production of Cole Porter's musical comedy Kiss Me Kate. Both had sold well and transferred to London or New York to enjoy lucrative future lives. Carrie would nicely round off a season of American-themed plays, which included They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, The Great White Hope, and a Christmas production of The Wizard of Oz, starring a 32-year-old Imelda Staunton as Dorothy. Uh, If Imelda can play Dorothy at 32, do I still have the chance to play Carrie? I mean, the theatre encourages us to use our imagination, but I think you may be more of a Miss Gardner now. Maybe a Margaret White, even. I don't deserve this. Bonus fact, though, Imelda's husband, Jim Carter, plays the lion. That is a great detail. The butler from Downton. What range? (laughs) With Fritz Kurtz on board, committing to fund the afterlife of the show post-Stratford, the RSC was ultimately protected from financial risk. If the show was a success, there was a good chance the company's share of the profits would help wipe out its debt. And presumably, Fritz hoped that Carrie would be a financial success so he could sweep it over to Germany and make a fortune himself, just as he'd done with other big British shows. But reputational risk was another matter. The company was wary of a high-profile flop in its first original musical since Les Mis, which itself had had a bit of a shaky start. However, the board gave the go-ahead for production to begin, and Fritz found a ragtag collection of investors. You make it sound like the cast of the cast of Oliver or something. In my head, that's exactly what it's like. I think it was a bit more professional than that. <laughs> um, 
Fritz tried to find a London theatre to commit to a transfer, but there was now little interest thanks to the initial sour reaction from the press. He turned to New York and eventually secured a commitment from a Broadway theatre owner to take on the show. But crucially though, Fritz had never produced a show or even worked on one from its very earliest stages. He was used to paying for replica productions and had no experience of the ins and outs of manoeuvring a new musical from page to stage. But by late 1987, despite a shaky start, all the pieces were in play. Again, nothing was easy. You know, we've got a director in England, we've got my two collaborators in New York, and I'm in Los Angeles. And so meetings, uh, script meetings and work was like putting the rockets on the road, you know, trying to work out the logistics of those meetings was very complicated. And then on top of that, um, the money, the real big money uh, producer came in from Germany. So we had time zones and jet lag and all sorts of things working against us. But we plowed ahead and started to do the work. Um, And that took us until 1988. There is still one piece missing from our jigsaw, though. Every musical, however much it's based on a paranormal mass murder, needs dancing. Possess! Yes! Was that Liza Minnelli? Yes. I'm contractually obliged to insert one impression into every project I'm involved in. You already did Gwen Verdon, though, earlier. There might not actually be a contract. Anyway, to try and provide some balance with Terry's approach, Dean and Michael pulled out their fame Rolodex and gave none other than their friend Debbie Allen a call. Now, I think it's fair to say that if Terry Hands was a quintessentially British director, Debbie Allen was a fundamentally American choreographer. And that dynamic certainly played out in the rehearsal room, as we'll discover soon enough. Look, it's fair to say there have been some great British-American duos. Meghan and Harry. Rose and Jack in Titanic. Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson. (laughs) Someone's been watching The Crown. (laughs) Oh my God, missed opportunity. They could have had late 80s Diana and Charles go and see Carrie in Stratford (laughs) on date. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Gosh, the timing works. Anyway, uh, Debbie was thrilled to be involved. I think we need to talk about what a legend Debbie Allen is. Mm. She is 70. She's an actress, singer, songwriter, dancer, choreographer, director and producer. She's been nominated for 20 Emmy Awards, won three, been nominated for two Tonys, has a Golden Globe and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In the 80s, she was known around the world for starring in and choreographing the TV adaptation of Fame. Her small role in the movie as the teacher Lydia Grant was expanded for the TV show and she was in it right up until 1987. She then starred in Bob Fosse's revival of Sweet Charity on Broadway, so she was a big name right across the entertainment industry. She's also the director of Netflix's recent Dolly Parton-led holiday special, Christmas on the Square. Mm -hmm. The greatest piece of art ever committed to film. You've said it now on a podcast, so it is official. It's a real thing. (laughs) Anyway, in the original souvenir brochure for Carrie, Debbie likens her relationship with Terry Hands to, quote, that of Professor Higgins and Eliza Doolittle. She says, I'm learning a lot, and I think he is too. How Hmm. do we describe Alan's choreography in Carrie? We're going to delve into it in much more detail when we break down the show in later episodes. But Debbie describes her process thus. By the time I came to London to work on Carrie, I had already worked on the choreography for about five weeks, establishing my own dance vocabulary in terms of what I felt about the show. By the time we started rehearsals in London, I had established the basic style of dance for the show. So what she's kind of saying is she's turning up with a style and technique before the rehearsals even started. Yeah, very that. I mean, the writers wanted MTV, and that is very much what Debbie delivered. Yeah. It sounds like Terry and Debbie essentially agreed to split up the show so they could prepare for it on their own sides of the Atlantic. Sounds like Terry was making the most of his experience directing classics by applying this mythical Greek tragedy vision to the scenes in Carrie, stripping the text down to its core... Meanwhile, Debbie had already set her mind to choreographing the high school scenes in the intensive, aerobic style for which she'd been so lauded in fame. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? It's an interesting cocktail. Mm. Despite the ominously different styles they'd chosen, with the director and choreographer on board, it meant that the team could start casting the show. Mirroring the Anglo-American mix of Terry and Debbie's partnership, Terry negotiated with Equity, the Actors' Union, to form a cast that was half American, half British, split exactly down the middle. The first time in musical theatre history this had ever been attempted. Auditions were held in London and New York. 
Let's meet our cast. Uh, Shall I go? Thank you. Hello, my name's Lindsay Haightley, and in 1988, I played the part of Carrie. Yeah, well, I was at, at um, a theatre school, Italia Conti, and I'd just gone into the student course. I was 16, and um, and there's an there's an agency attached to the to the school, and um, I'd been a junior there for a few years, and and I never got put up for anything. You know, I was just one of those sort of um, th there was some really cute looking kids that got work all the time, and I just wasn't that. You know, I was kind of a, a gawky sort of chubby teenager but I sang very well you know my, my voice Lindsay was 16 but her voice was already making quite an impact at drama school um, and they said um, you're going along to the London Palladium and you need to get yourself some dance gear and a song to sing and um, so I I didn't really know exactly at that point that I was going for Carrie I just knew I was going for Carrie the musical and uh, I went along with my leg warmers and uh, the whole outfit, probably even a headband knowing me and my big 80s hair. And, um, and I remember very, very clearly standing on the London Palladium stage and thinking, my God, if I, you know, I've died and gone to heaven just actually before I've done mm. anything. And I learned a routine with all these phenomenal dancers and they were all quite a bit taller and a lot thinner than me but I, did, I just went with it I just thought well you know maybe they're looking for all different shapes and sizes um, and we learned a routine to Michael Jackson's bad mm. and they blasted it through the sound system and it sounded amazing that doom, 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 doom. I can almost remember the routine it, it, for the teenager from the Midlands the audition alone was magical I really did think, well, even if I don't go any further, this is a dream. Um, and I remember, again, like everyone else, you know, we grew up with fame. And to sort of have Debbie Allen in front of you is a bit surreal. Um, and, and so I did this routine. And then I was asked to go and sing, which I think I went some, to a different room to sing, but I may be wrong. And I chose to sing On My Own from Les Mis because um, I'd just recently heard Les Mis. It had only just, just opened. And uh, my Auntie Violet said, Oh, Linz, there's a party in Les Mis that you'd be lovely at. <laughs> or oh, Eponine. Honestly, I could see you doing that one. Auntie Violet. I love her. What a hero. <laughs> Lindsay was called back the next day and the full creative team was there. They asked her to make a few tweaks. All the, you know, uh, Dean Pitchard, Michael Gore, Terry Hands, yeah. Debbie Allen, and they got me to sing again. And I sang on my own. And then Dean Pitchford, who was and always remained such a warm and gentle um, person, came up to me and said, um, Would you mind? putting your hair down and taking off your makeup and just looking like you naturally. Um, and I think the thing was, I was 16 and I just thought, I'm never going to be employed unless I make myself look as old as possible. So I'd kind of put the hair up and put lots of makeup yeah. on and put my heels on and try it because I thought that that's probably what was necessary. Because um, I didn't know what I was doing. And um, so I came back, I took all my makeup off, I sat in this um, uh, dressing room where there was a lot of the other girls that were, um, and I seem to remember Sally. Sally That's Sally Ann Triplett who ends up playing Sue. God, she's fierce. And I remember hearing her and thinking, oh my God, she's just amazing and, and seemed to be so confident. She might not have been, but it, the it, she came across yeah. so confident and so, you know, feisty. Um I took my makeup off, went back in, uh, sang on my own again, and there was a there was a noticeable excitement within them. I didn't know what that meant, but then they said, "Right, can can we teach you a bit of uh, a song?" And they they played. Dun, 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 dun. Doesn't anybody ever get it right, Carrie? And as soon as I heard that, I was just like, "This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing." It just it for me. I instantly connected with it, and I just thought, I, I know what I, I know what this 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 feels right. So I, I sort of learnt, I learnt quickly in those days. I can't read music, still can't, but I think um, I got a good ear, and so I learnt it very very quickly. And they said, right now, now do it again, um, and really mean it, like you know, this is. And so I just blasted it at the park as much as I possibly could, and. Um, there was a sense of something, something felt 
felt good there. Um, and that was it. And I went home and I thought, well, that was mad. That was. Lindsay had a sleepless night. And then I went into to college the next day and I didn't hear anything all day and I just thought, oh, well, maybe that's that's it. And it was just an amazing, amazing moment. And then in the afternoon, it, it was actually, ironically, it was my 17th birthday. And um, I was called up to the agency and I walked all the way up to these flights of stairs and I thought, I hope it's not bad news because it's my birthday. But anyway, and I walked in and I was given this card and I opened it and it was a birthday card and it said, happy birthday, Carrie. Oh, Isn't that incredible? <laughs> I remember as she was telling this story because Lindsay's such a lovely, honest, humble lady. And I was yeah. like, oh, I hope she gets the part. And, yeah, and 17 is just so young for someone to take on this kind of epic lead role in such a disturbing story. We wondered what her parents thought. Well, I think think they were concerned. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it was a strange subject matter uh, to, for your child to suddenly be, to go from being at school to suddenly playing the the title role in a Stephen King thing, which is which is of a strange, dark, uh, abusive, you know, and they were concerned, you know. I mean, we actually, and to be fair to Terry, and Terry gets such a raw deal in all this and I, I I try and champion him a little bit because actually he was quite supportive of me and when I first got the role he he made a point of taking me and my parents out and explained what he thought the the process would be and that he would guarantee that I wouldn't be um I wouldn't have to expose myself you know because I you know they were like you should have to sort of you know it, when you look at the film and city space and all that you know it's it's full-on as things will go, 17-year-old Lindsay perhaps wasn't as protected as first promised. There was a degree of, but there was a degree of, um, we, we can promise you that, you know, at any point if Lindsay's uncomfortable with stuff, we will, um, you know, try and, and protect her. I mean, I don't actually think I was, but that, that wasn't necessarily through him not trying to. It's just the circumstances then became um, unprotected, really. Yeah. As Lindsay mentioned, Sally-Ann Triplett was at the same audition. In her mid-twenties, she'd already had quite a bit of professional stage experience. She landed the role of nice girl Sue Snell. So Sue Snell was, um, if you know the film, this is the Amy Irving part, and she's kind of, I guess, the good girl um, in the piece. So at the time that I heard about the audition for Carrie, I was in Follies at Shaftesbury, and... I, I was in the ensemble, though I understudied a part. And I heard about this show. I didn't have an agent. I hadn't had, didn't have an agent for about 15 years when I first started out. And I used to find all my own work and just managed to just always keep working. And I, and I thought, well, with the show's been running, Follies has been running for six months. I'm going to just, like, try my luck. So Sally-Ann took herself off to the Palladium. We had to go to the Palladium and Debbie Allen was there, and I don't remember what I sang, but I definitely remember uh, doing an improvisational dance routine for her. She just put on some music, and I just had to dance around the room. Um, and then, and then I guess I just got offered the job, and then I had to work out how I was going to get out of follows. She's talking here about the West End premiere of Sondheim's Follies, which had opened in July that year. Sally Ann was midway through her contract. Unlike Broadway, if you're in a show in the West End, you're there for the year, you know, and you're not let go at all. That's not a thing that, that we do in the West End. It still isn't really. Um, and so I, 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 I got to work and Mike Ockram, the wonderful director of Follies, he happened to be in the building that night and I cornered him on the stairs. I remember it so vividly. It was coming, going, going down to the basement of the theatre and I just told him the story of what had happened and he, and he just said, well, you, we have to make this happen for you. He was the most brilliant man and he said, we have to make this happen um, and we have to release you. So I got released. Um, my really good friend, Julie Armstrong, um, entered the show of Follies and I went off and, and I did carry. The creative team flew to New York where they ran the same auditions for the American performers. Charlotte D'Amboise was an experienced Broadway dancer. I think I danced first 
And it was Debbie Allen, who's just insane with choreography, just insane, you know, like kicking and turning and, you know, you, you had to have technique to get past anything. And that's really my forte. I knew, you know, that give me the most technique and I'm going to nail it. So that was, you know, great. And I got all the way to the end. And then, um, then I sang and then I read and then I think I had to come back for a callback. And I was doing the show. Was I doing song and dance at the time? I think I might have been. It was only a stroke of luck from on high that meant Charlotte nabbed the role of Chris, the meanest girl in town. Anyway, this girl named Mary Ellen Stewart. Stunning. Gorgeous. And Terry Hands, who was the director, was like mad for her. And he wanted her and was wooing her. And rightly so. She actually was much more right for the part than I was, truthfully, honestly. And I don't say that often. But she was totally right for the part and would have been brilliant. Anyway, she got the part. I wasn't surprised and I was devastated. And, and then like the next day, I could probably the next day, I, she, I remember her, she called me up and she said, you know what? I read the script. I'm a born again Christian. I can't curse. I can't curse. I can't say those words. And I was like, yeah. I have no problem cursing. No problem. Great, 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 great. So it was my part. And then I was like leaving for London, you know, in a, like a week. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, is there that much swearing in the show? Well, there's the iconic line from Nasty Chris herself. Try her. Do you know what Shelly calls her? <laughs> Shelly calls her scary wife. Chris, please. I just call her stupid bitch. That's enough. I remember that line from the bootleg video. It just made us laugh and laugh. It's my favourite. We've quoted it a few times over the years. The hard drive that we've saved all our interviews on is called Stupid Bitch. And we were very excited to ask Charlotte if she remembered that classic line. You know what? No. I don't remember any of my lines. (laughs) Okay, who's next? Margaret White, super religious mother of Carrie. Played incredibly in the movie by Piper Laurie. Now, the writing team had had a name in mind from the start, Betty Buckley. Betty was a Broadway stalwart. She'd been called the voice of Broadway by New York magazine. But she also had a very special Carrie connection. Betty had played the role of the gym teacher in the movie. Plus, Dean Pitchford had performed with her in the musical Pippin several years earlier, and the two had remained close friends. From the beginning... My, I, I told Michael and Larry that I wrote what I wrote in what my contributions to Carrie were always with Betty's ear um, voice in my ear, and um, I uh, I think that a lot of what we gave, especially in Act One, a, a lot of what we gave to Margaret to sing was dependent on hearing that that enormous voice. Uh, peeling the paint off the walls in the theatre. Betty obviously knew the Carrie story inside out and was sceptical about how well it would translate to the stage. But she trusted her friend. And Betty came in audition for... Uh, she was gracious enough to come in audition for our director and our producers and um, uh, she they wanted her. Betty met with Terry, but things did not get off to a flying start. Mm. Terry, being not so familiar with Who's Who on Broadway, interrogated her about her acting experience, making her feel uncomfortable. This Broadway star did not believe she had to justify her marquee value to a man from England that she'd never met. She told him to speak to Trevor Nunn if he needed a character reference. Betty had worked with Trevor on the Broadway premiere of Cats, winning a Tony for the role of Grisabella. All a bit awkward. Her meeting with Terry left a bitter taste. I, I think it, contract negotiations broke down. It, it went, it, things went south in the, in the uh, and it's, 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 I've seen this happen before on other projects of mine. And you just, you, you, there's only so much wringing of the hands and uh, shedding of the tears uh, before you pick up your toys and you move on. And, um, and so, listen, what we did, though, was we replaced one Broadway legend with another Broadway legend. Uh, it's not a bad trade. Not a bad trade. That other Broadway legend was Barbara Cook. 20 years older than Betty, Barbara Cook had come to prominence on Broadway in the 1950s, leading a string of hit shows and winning a Tony for The Music Man in 1957. By the late 80s, she had all but retired, apart from the occasional cabaret or solo show. But Barbara was wooed out of retirement by Terry to do Carrie. 
Sadly, she is no longer with us. Barbara passed away in 2017. But we were lucky enough to speak with her close friend, Georgia Otterson. Barbara Cook and I uh, were, were dear, very close friends. Like many, I first met her as a performer. And uh, of course, she just tugged at my heart because I think uh, she had this incredible emotional, it wasn't just the voice, the instrument. It's this ability to connect emotionally in a big way. She was invited to meet, it might have been, I'm trying to remember, it might have been the the creators of the show. And she thought, well, I don't know, but they asked her to meet with Terry Hams. And um, so in New York, she met with him and she thought he was just it. And I think she, because many of her friends were going, Carrie? <laughs> you know? and, and, well, he has this idea of this kind of Greek tragedy, you know, thing. And she was, you know, infatuated, I think, with his idea of it. And she liked him a lot. And there you go. Georgia accompanied her on the trip to England. So when Barbara accepted, decided to do Carrie, um, I was working, but I was also ailing of a broken romantic heart. And she's like, come with me, come with me. And, uh, and actually I was hired, I was hired as her assistant. And um, of course I was her driver, her pal. Of course, Barbara Cook was this legend already then. You know, she, she, she'd been a Broadway legend in the 50s, um, into the early 60s, but long before my time, I hasten to add. And this was her big return to the, the theatrical stage. She hadn't been on Broadway since uh, the mid-60s. Mid, uh, um, and so it was a really big deal. Mark Shenton was getting his foothold as a journalist in the mid-80s. He was a keen theatre-goer, so was delighted to be sent to interview Barbara. He thinks that having her attached to the project lent it some credibility. She was absolutely fascinating. And, of course, you know, a lot was riding on the show for her because it was uh, this... Um, brand new musical. She was going back to Broadway where she hadn't appeared for many years. The, the fascinating thing, I mean, everybody was was really uh, paying attention to it because first of all, it seemed a bizarre idea anyway. A Stephen King novel like that, why would you do a musical of it? Um, you know, it, it, it seemed bizarre, but it also had serious artistic legs because first of all, Barbara Cook is, is an amazing talent. Um, and everybody would have assumed, as I did, that even there must be something going for it if she's put her name to it. So Barbara's on board, but that's not the last time we'll hear about Betty Buckley. Not at all. Mm. More from our cast after this short break. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favourite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus so the role of carrie's sympathetic gym teacher miss gardner went to the legendary singer darlene love darlene had had a great career as a vocalist on some of the biggest hits of the 50s and 60s as part of the girl group the crystals then as a solo artist including the phil Spector produced all-time christmas classic christmas baby please come home she's ranked 84th on rolling stone's list of the 100 greatest singers that's even higher than you i know by the 1980s living in new york darlene had set her sights on broadway she'd recently appeared in the jukebox musical leader of the pack alongside Annie Golden, who we heard from in the last episode. Darlene comes across as the kind of person who doesn't dwell on the past. Mm -hmm. Reflecting on her Broadway experience in her autobiography, she writes, I did get in one more show, Carrie, about which I'll say only this. 
I got to go to London and take Debbie Allen's dance class, which worked me into the best shape of my life. There were sore muscles that had been asleep for 40 years. Theatre scholars know that the show itself was one of the unmitigated disasters in Broadway history. At least it closed on the first night, and we could all laugh about it before too long. Ice cold. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, I mean, I mean, it wasn't quite the first night, but no, close enough. Yeah. Pedant. <laughs> Darlene also talks about the bond she formed with cast member Rose Jackson, who was the understudy for Carrie. Darlene was astonished by Rose's dancing and the pair hit it off right away. And they've stayed friends ever since. Rose is still Darlene's choreographer. We also spoke to several members of the Carrie Ensemble. I'm Michelle Duvernay and I was part of the original cast of Carrie. I think we were called Chorus at that time. Hi, I'm Joey McNeely. Uh, hi, my name's Susie Thomas also known as Squeeze, and um, I was in the original cast of Carrie. Hello, I'm Kenny Linden, and I played Kenny in Carrie, because we were all given our own names. Do you remember that? Hello, my name is Michelle Hodgson, and I played the part of Shelley, because Kenny is absolutely right. We played, we created, invented the role, so we were told that should the show run, people would be auditioning for the part of Michelle, Kenny and Shelley. And the others. Sadly, it didn't run. <laughs> That's the end of that one. <laughs> this is one of my favourite things about the show. It's amazing. If you look in the playbill, all the ensemble play characters with their own names. Incredible. So Kenny played Kenny. Eric played Eric. But they hit a bit of a stumbling block with this right away. Too many Michelles. <laughs> and funnily enough, bit of trivia for you, three Michelles. And I have been called Shelley ever since because of Carrie. So she was always DuVernay. There's Michelle Nelson, who's in South Africa, and Michelle Hodgson, and Debbie couldn't cope with it, could she? You're all going to change. Someone's got to be something else. So she became DuVernay. I became Shelley, and Michelle kept the name Michelle and have been Michelle Shelley ever since. It's Debbie Allen's fault. I, I didn't like that because I wanted on my CV to look like I'd played something. Right. So yeah, I thought yeah. Kenny Linden playing Kenny just looks stupid. It looks like I made it up for myself. <laughs> so I never put that on. Oh my God! My mum's got that. So you can check. Oh yeah, my you God. Are, I think I've got three in the loft. <laughs> I found you? a so load of brochures. What's your names? And we were okay. Oh, we listed we're as, as Kenny Linden as Kenny. Time has yeah. not... But there you go. There's a kind of, I don't know if it was a marker of what was to come. They didn't really have names for the characters. No. They had. They couldn't even be bothered to think up names for us. And her mother, Margaret, and, you know, Mrs. Miss Gardner, but everyone else was just like, well, what do you want to be called? Okay, let's just call you that. Yeah. Kind of gives you a little clue as to what's coming. Some of the thing that's coming. I want to play Shelley and Carrie. Do you know what Shelley calls her? Iconic. So throughout the next few episodes, as well as Lindsay, Sally-Ann and Charlotte, you'll be hearing from ensemble members Shelley Hodgson, Michelle Mann, Michelle DuVernay, Kenny Linden, Suzanne Thomas, also known as Squeeze, Eric Gilliam and Joey McNeely. But it was, it was just brilliant, wasn't it? To reunite them and hear these yeah. incredible stories, the memories of being in the show. And we have tried to cram in as many as we possibly can. So first up, let's hear their audition stories. Michelle Duvernay. I was doing class at Pineapple Dance Studios and one of a really good friend of mine said, there's an audition at the, I think it was the Palladium. Yeah. At the Palladium. Uh, why don't you come? And I said, I haven't gone through the agent, didn't know anything about it. And he said, just come. The worst that can happen is that you get thrown out. And I thought, you know what? Okay. Came out of class, got, went in uh, and <laughs> managed to get through the door did the audition, got a recall, and then another one. Um, and then, of course, Debbie Allen was involved and she's someone that I used to watch fame and I wanted to be her and entered competitions to be one of the kids from all, all of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, I thought, oh, my God, this is huge. Yeah. Actually, I can't believe it. And uh, loved the audition, loved the whole process. I don't remember being particularly scared she did ask me or they did ask me to choose another song I remember also not hearing for a while so on the grapevine you know you go to class and oh so and so's got oh so and so's going to Broadway oh my and I, was like, I haven't heard anything so I took a panto awful so went off just thinking oh you haven't got it 
For our non-British friends, Panto is a sort of annual Christmas tradition that takes place in pretty much every town around the country, <laughs> apart from this year, obviously. Uh, it's a kind of festive sort of kids variety show loosely based on fairy tales. It's absolutely bonkers, uh, but they often provide huge numbers of jobs to singers and dancers on short-term contracts. There are often two or three shows a day and they can be very hard work. Book myself into Panto somewhere in Nottingham in a bedsit on my own, hating life. One day of rehearsals, uh, my agent called the producer and said, can we speak to Michelle? <laughs> Michelle, you need to get out of there. I'm going to get you out of there. You're going on Broadway. I was like, <laughs> I couldn't believe. Left, it's went home. It was a bit yeah. of a change. Kenny Linden. I remember the one with Debbie Allen, because obviously it's Debbie Allen. And I remember hearing her say, I don't, um, she said to, muttered to her assistant something about not wanting anyone who was out of breath. So I didn't breathe for a whole audition. I was doing my best. And she came over to me at one point and she said, what kind of street dancing do you do? And I said, oh, I don't dance in the street. I hadn't a clue what she was talking about. And she should have known there and then that we were not a perfect match. But I somehow got through that. And then I'd sung for them. And then they said, come back with a pop song. So, of course, I chose number three in the charts, I think it was, Cliff Richard, um, some people. Did that little number and I had as my backup um, Never Gonna Give You Up because that also was top of the pops. So I was ready for it. The cutting edge of 80s pop. And all of the creative team were there behind this desk. So there was Michael Gore, Dean Pitchford, Terry Hans, Larry Cohen and Debbie. And um, back then it was John Owen Edwards being the MD. And they gave me a piece of music and I was like, all right, I can't just sing this. I can't sing like this. So they, they played the tune and I was like, I can't, I still can't do it. I'm all over the place. And I was so nervous. I was shaking like my driving test. It was horrible. And they took me out and they stroked me for a while and said, come back in and try again. And it was um, the Tommy number from oh, wow. the um, prom. And I still couldn't do it. I was just terrible, really terrible. I was just a, a shivering wreck. And then after that, I didn't hear anything. And then I got a phone call saying, can you come down and take some carry auditions for us? Kenny had impressed the team more than he realised, and he was asked to help audition more dancers in London. I went, what? And they went, yeah, take the audition. So I I said, are you going to pay me? And they went, yes. And I went, all right then. So I went down, and I think I got 50 quid and my train fare, and I taught all these boys auditioning for Tommy Ross. And... I taught them the same routine that we'd done in in the audition, uh, what I could remember of it. And at one point I did a kick and fell over because it was a slippery floor. And that's always embarrassing. I've done that so many times in life. It's not good. Um, And then they employed somebody for Tommy, Paul Gingell, who was marvellous. And I ended up understudying him, which was nice. But um, I think I was just too gibbery a wreck to ever be in show business, really. And then after that, I said, have I actually got the job? And they said, oh, yeah, you're in it. And I was like, all right, thanks. Sadly, Paul Gingell, who landed the role of Tommy Ross, Sue's boyfriend, who winds up taking Carrie to the prom, is no longer with us. He passed away in 2010. If Kenny's audition process sounds taxing, Shelley Hodgson recalls another embarrassing audition moment. The only recollection I have is... (laughs) (laughs) I sang Papa Don't Preach. And I forgot the words. And I, it was, um, Papa, don't preach, I'm in trouble, D. Papa, don't preach, I'm in trouble, D. And that's all I kept singing. <laughs> I couldn't remember another flipping line. I'm in trouble, D. And I think Debbie, I think Debbie said something and then went, hmm, you, see, you seem to be in trouble quite a bit there, honey. And I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just, my, my mind's gone black. I do apologise, blah, blah, blah. So giving it all loads and realising you just say the same thing. That's my lasting memory of that audition, which was basically me singing, Papa, I'm in trouble. I mean, oh, my God, get me out of here. This is insane. I know this song. Eric Gilliam auditioned in L.A. after getting a call from Debbie Allen just as rehearsals were about to start. It was unconventional. Debbie had flown back to, to L.A. and so the audition was at her house. So I showed up at Debbie's house uh, and, and right away I was, you know, 
I was terrified because it was not the auditioning uh, atmosphere I was expecting. I thought I was going to go to one of the dance studios or whatever, but all of a sudden I'm in her house. She said, we got to, we need another guy. And I said, and so when they cast me, I didn't realize at the time she's like, well, how soon, you know, I said, how soon is this gig starting? She goes, you need, you're leaving Wednesday. I said, wait, what? It's Wednesday. Uh, cause this was a Saturday. So I only had four days to, to get my life together and pack. And then next thing I know, I walked into a rehearsal in Putney and then you guys were already in the middle of it all. So I was a little bit, I, I was, I was actually completely terrified when I got there because I didn't know what to expect. Several of the ensemble dancers were appearing together in another show. Suzanne recalls. I was doing ch- uh, chess. I was the original cast of chess. Kath Coffey, who was in our show, she was also in chess. Maddie Lofton was in chess. Michelle Nelson was in chess. There's a whole bunch of us. So you know, like, everyone goes to the same auditions. Oh, guys, have you heard, have you heard? And then a whole load of us got Carrie. So that's how I did, you know, so that's how I got into the, doing the show. I think the chess cast was um, Michael Bennett cast us, you know, chorus line. So of course it was probably a lot of the best dancers in London wanted to do that show. So I like to think that's why, you know, Debbie came and wanted to find the best dancers. Well, we happened to that year all be in the same show. <laughs> Joey McNeely had just come out of a short-lived show on Broadway called Rosa. And it lasted like three weeks on Broadway and it closed like overnight. It was like, and I was shocked. I was like, oh my God, I need a job. And all of a sudden the Carrie audition appeared and I showed up and, um, and got the, the gig, you know, I was like, just happy to work. And it was uh, interesting, a lot of the, the Broadway dancers, some of the best Broadway dancers, Scott Wise, Charlotte Dembois, uh, myself, Marianne Lamb, we all like got into Carrie too. So I think it was just the timing of, you know, that period of the late 80s where, you know, um, the, the best dancers always go from show to show to show. And Carrie had such a huge, uh, uh, reputation at the moment it was like carry the musical we have to be in that you know it was like something we we must too what was it like being thrust into rehearsals with cast members from the other side of the world well right away the biggest difference i noticed was just how much more chill the the british cast members were because like i remember like the first day of rehearsal because i came into the situation a little later because everybody was had already been cast and they were you guys were already in rehearsal and um, the very first, that very first rehearsal for me, uh, I won't never forget when we, we took a break. And we, I don't know if it was a lunch break. Or we were done with rehearsal that day. All you Brits went to the pub. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Brits do like a drink. <laughs> I mean, why let an intense day of aerobic dance rehearsals get in the way of a trip to the pub? No. <laughs> and like. And it was like, yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna have a pint. And I'm like, wait, wait, we're gonna what? We're gonna drink. We're like, yeah, we're gonna drink. We're gonna have a pint, you know. And so, on that first day, I I think I got drunk at, at the day after my my first rehearsal, and I was amazed. So you guys were much more chill to me than you know. I think, um, and I don't know. I always kind of felt like there was this weird expectation that that kind of came from Debbie as far as like. Like we had to, the Americans just had to be, we're constantly having to deliver. Like it's like this, you know, um, so I, I felt like it was a, it was a, it was a wonderful balance and a great blend in the end. The dancers were paired up for many of the routines. Generally they were all mixed. Like it was a Brit with a, an American and sometimes it'd be American with American or a Brit with a Brit. For instance, Charlotte Dembois and Jean Anthony Ray were the American bad couple. So they were together, and the Brits were the good couple, Sally and Triplett, you know, and her partner. <clears throat> Some pairs were closer than others. Well, we got along great. Susie and I got along great. <laughs> Jerry and I dated. <laughs> <laughs> we were dance partners. You know, we got to, and we just hit it off. We had the great time together. There was certainly a party atmosphere amongst the young cast. And then, of course, you guys were all in London, so you all want to party. And then when we go to New York, we all want to go, like, we're in New York, oh my God, you know. I mean, it was just like, and we're all so young that you could play as hard as you worked. The antics continued backstage. One day, ensemble member Rose Jackson started a water fight. I think she started it, so just chucked some water over someone. Then before you know it, the whole cast are running around. I mean, this is the Royal Shakespeare Company, right? This has never happened before, you know, they're all... 
<laughs> reading sonnets in the corner of the and then there's all these kids half butt naked out of the shower I can't remember Scott Wire was just like the smallest towel around his waist probably you too Joey and we're just having this massive water fight at the end you know it's mad <laughs> so if, if the club wasn't open we made our own club you know I think <laughs> because we all just found just a common thread and when we went to Stratford I remember just going out to that dodgy disco below the hotel do you guys remember that Michelle and Eric we went down to this there's this dodgy disco below the hotel and we just go in and throw shapes I mean it was Gene Anthony right with Leroy from fame I mean hello people they were just sat there with their warm pints looking at us and we're throwing these shapes you know the, the fact that Gene Anthony Ray was jumping around in Stratford-on-Avon down the streets of you know Shakespeare land. They're talking about Gene Anthony Ray, who played Billy Nolan, the dim boyfriend of Charlotte's role, Chris. He was quite a celebrity at the time, having played Leroy in both the Fame movie and TV series. Another Fame link. Yep. And at the time, remember, Fame was massive, not just in America, but here in the UK too and across Europe. Think Glee at its most popular. The motion, the, the motion picture of Fame did very nicely in this country, but really what put Fame on the map was five seasons of the television show. And that really cemented its place in American culture. And it was popular. It was quite popular in the States. And the kids from fame was a popular thing here. Not like in England and in Europe. In England and Europe, they were like the Spice Girls. It was, it was crazy what kind of crowds turned out for and every time they would finish a season of fame they'd put the kids from fame out on tour and send them all over europe and rake in the money and then come back and shoot another season of that and so um i say that as a setup because we not only had the choreographer of fame debbie allen choreographing for us we had the star one of the stars of the motion picture and the television show and the kids from fame tours, Gene Anthony Ray was starring in the show. I love the idea of him turning up in this sleepy British town. The reaction to like, him and Debbie must have been absolutely like intense. I, I do remember him being very famous. I mean, like, you know, he was always, whenever we'd go to restaurants, you know, he, he was recognizable always. I do remember that. And, and he wasn't happy about that. He was uncomfortable with fame. I, I mean, he, he, he didn't like it. And he wasn't always, you know, he did, wasn't always, he, he didn't like it. Um, but he got a lot of attention. He did. Just because, just people recognized him. He, people really recognized him. Um, sweet, sweet guy. So talented. Sadly, Gene Anthony Ray passed away in 2003. And I look at footage and he's just so masculine and powerful and like raw, like just raw. You know what I mean? It's so sexy. It's just crazy sexy and raw. And that's how he was. I mean, he lived on the edge. He, um, he really lived on the edge. And he was very close with Debbie Allen. They were very close. I mean, she, he was like, you know, she loved him to death and... And he was a sweet soul, sweet soul. God rest his soul. So our cast is assembled, split 50-50 British and American, a groundbreaking experiment, but not a simple one in terms of logistics and money. Half the cast, exactly half the cast would be British and exactly half the cast would be American. And it sounds like, like I said, a Solomonic solution, but what ends up happening when you do that is that at any given time in your process, half of your company is out of town. And because half of your company is out of town, there are daily expenses, there are transportation expenses, uh, per diems to pay. Um, and it's a very, uh, it had never been done before. It was very pioneering. Uh, they, they thought maybe this will be the way that things will get done going forward into the future. Um, it, it ended up, being all the many, many hurdles that I described, me from the West Coast, my partners in New York, uh, Terry in London, uh, Fritz in, in Berlin, uh, was complicated by the fact that now we had 30 people, 15 of whom at least were living out of suitcases. And then we moved them all to New York and the other 15 were living out of suitcases. 
it was, uh, and, and I, you know, I would visit rehearsals and I would look around the room and think how grateful I was that these kids, for the most part, they were the kids, were upending their lives to do our show. It was, it was a, 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 an enormous gift from them to us. Okay, I think it's time for a recap. Good idea. Yeah. So Carrie has an ambitious director with plenty of Shakespeare plays and classical knowledge, but no experience of staging large-scale commercial musical theatre. It's got a big-name choreographer with a very firm plan of action. It has a producer, well-off and well-connected, but with absolutely no experience of building a multi-million dollar show from scratch. And it has a theatre, maybe not the most likely one, Mm -hmm. but Carrie was all set to premiere at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in the quaint English town of Stratford-upon-Avon. February 1988. That date was now set in... In stone. And after that, they'd open on Broadway in May, just in time for the Tony Award nominations. And we've got our cast, half American, half British, thrust together in a town with lots of pubs. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Next time on Out for Blood. Americans work completely differently to British people. That They give you 150% from the first half an hour. They were throwing shapes, chucking themselves around, woo-hoo, high-fiving, giving it a whole nine yards. And we're looking at each other as if to say... You've got to be joking. And so what we had was a show that was created by two different people in two different spaces and then brought together and welded down the middle. I wonder how much they'd actually sat down together and gone, right, what are we trying to achieve as a whole thing? It was it was torn in so many directions. No wonder I ate a lot of ice cream. You know, once we got in the theatre, I think to myself, what the fuck is going on here? Like, this did not, it didn't feel like there's something, something is terribly wrong. But, you know, Barbara did not want to go back to New York in the show. And the set got stuck. So Barbara Cook was mid-stage with the kind of set hovering above her. Yeah, well, it was a nightmare. I mean, I remember the first time at Stratford thinking this show is bonkers. It really is bonkers. Blood is a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. For more information about us and the podcast, please visit us online at bpn.fm slash outforblood. And if you've enjoyed Out for Blood so far, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you downloaded us from. And don't forget to click subscribe. If you're a fan of Carrie, we've been posting a ton of behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and more on our socials. So find us at Out for Blood Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and Out for Blood Pod on Twitter. Out for Blood was hosted and produced by me, Chris Adams. And me, Holly Morgan. Sound and Engineering and editing by Tom Moores. Paddy Jervis is our audio consultant. Original music by Odin Orn Hillmarson and artwork by Rebecca Pitt. Thanks this week to Dean Pitchford, Lindsay Haightley, Sally Ann Triplett, Charlotte Damboise, Georgia Otterson, Michelle DuVernay, Shelley Hodgson, Suzanne Thomas, Joey McNeely, Kenny Linden, Eric Gilliam, Michelle Nelson Mann, Jeremy Sturt, Wendy Peters, and Mark Shenton. That's a lot of names. Mm. Mark's excellent theatre blog can be found at shentonstage.com. You can find a link to that, plus other great stuff in our show notes on your podcast app. See you next week. Oh, Tom. Yeah. Uh, there's something I want you to do for me. What? My daddy can buy me all the things that you want. <laughs> hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, only prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.